only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Hello and welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm Sarah Flora. So on part one of the history of women in beer, we debunked myths and discussed the first female Brewsters. For this episode and part two of the series, I thought I would take a more modern approach. Focusing on women who led the way as brewmasters and were some of the first pioneers of craft brewing. You'll also hear my conversation with Tara Nuren, Forbes Beer and Spirits contributing writer, author, and marketing professional, it makes sense that some of the early female brewmasters of the 20th century came from Europe, given the beer's history there. Rosa Merckx started working at Leifman's Oudenard Brewery in Belgium in 1946. The brewery was looking for a trilingual secretary. Rosa spoke English, French, and Dutch, which was not very common. The owner offered her the position. Rosa had a good sense of taste when it came to beer, and the owner appreciated her input. She started to become more involved in the production and ended up brewing with the owner. Over those 26 years, Rosa became an integral part of the brewery. After the death of her former boss, his family asked her to take over the 300-year-old brewery. In 1972, she became the first official female brewmaster and operations director in Belgium. Across the pond in the U.S., in 1976, one of the first microbreweries since Prohibition was New Albion Brewing in Sonoma, California. Suzanne Stern Dennison and Jane Zimmerman, the owners and brewers, along with their business partner, Jack McAuliffe, who started as a home brewer, inspired and created a model for other breweries to follow their lead. Some well-known breweries in NorCal, like Sierra Nevada and Hopland, credit Albion for their early success. Though Albion only remained open for six years, it has lasting effects on the craft brewing movement. In 2012, the Boston Beer Company brought back New Albion's original pale ale recipe for national distribution. There's a really great interview with Suzanne, or Susie as she prefers to be called, published in 2020 on beervanablog.com, and I'm going to include a link to it on floribrewing.com under the podcast tab if you'd like to read more about her story. Susie is now 88 living in Seattle, and she still enjoys beers, especially an IPA. The 
first official female brewmaster in America was Madeline Pullman in 1986. Melly, as she prefers to be called, was an engineer graduate and already had a connection to beer with her family on her father's side who worked at Schlitz Brewing. But she didn't consider a career in beer until she met Greg Scherf. While on vacation, she met Greg and they got to talking. He was planning to open a brewery and shared some of the details. She asked who the brewer was going to be. His plan was to train someone. Melly, who had homebrewed previously, felt a strong interest in Greg's idea and pretty much said, I want the job. She started training at Hart Brewing in Kalama, Washington, which was one of the first craft breweries in the Northwest. Also, Hart Brewing was co-founded by Beth Hartwell in 1984. Beth is the first known woman to co-own a brewery post-prohibition. Melly and Greg also worked together to open Wasatch Brewery, a.k.a. Scherf Brewing Company, in Utah, which was the first brewery in the area since Prohibition. Now she teaches others about the business of making beer as a professor at Portland State University. Another pioneer of the craft beer movement and one of the first female brewmasters in the United States is Carol Stout of Stout's Brewing Company in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, which was founded in 1987. Also during the 80s, there were only about 150 breweries in the U.S. She led the brewery with the support of her husband, Ed. Together, they added a 30-barrel brew house to their restaurant, and after 33 years in the profession, Carol recently retired in 2020. Everyone knows Anheuser-Busch, but did you know that two women developed quite a few beers you see every day at your local grocery store? Brewmaster Jill Vaughn and Rebecca Bennett were behind Michelob Ultra, Shock Top, Bud Light Platinum, Bud Light Lime, and the Strawberryita. It goes without saying the beer industry is far from diverse. Women and people of color working in the industry are still to this day a very small percentage. Which is why sharing the history and discussing topics like this is so important to advocate for change in the industry. We have to keep the conversation going. In 1977, the inspiring Patricia Henry made major beer history for both women and people of color. Patricia became both the first black person and first female brewmaster for a major U.S. brewery, Miller Brewing, or today as we know them, Miller Coors. In 1995, she managed the Miller Brewing facility in Eden, North Carolina, which at the time was producing 8 million barrels a year. Patricia also received a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry, studied at the Siebel Institute of Brewing Technology and Harvard University. When she retired, her title at Miller Coors was Director of Strategic Projects. Now that brings us to the past 20 years of brewing leading up to the modern day. In the early 90s, it was Kim Jordan, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with, co-founder of New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado, who would spark a more mainstream look at how women can dominate brewing, and she is a personal hero. New Belgium is best known for their Fat Tire Amber Ale and Voodoo Ranger IPA, and is now one of the top four craft breweries in the United States. Up until recently, it was 100% employee-owned. Kim and her then-husband, Jeff Lebish, started the brewery in their basement. All you homebrewers out there trying to convert your home into a brewery, this should be even more motivation to do so. 
What happens when you know so many incredibly inspiring women in brewing who are living life on their own terms like all the ones that I've mentioned in the show today? You bring them all together and create a group just for them to connect and empower one another. And that's where the Pink Boots Society comes in. The Pink Boots Society is a nonprofit organization created to assist, inspire, and encourage women in the fermented and alcoholic beverage industry to advance their careers through education. Founded in 2007, Pink Boots Society was inspired by Terry Farendorf while on a cross-country trip after leaving her position as head brewer at Steelhead in Eugene, Oregon. Terry wanted to learn about the differences in regional brewing, so she grabbed her pink rubber boots, started connecting with female brewers during the journey, and blogged about her experience. After visiting 70 breweries and participating in 38 brews, she knew something had to be done to connect all these female brewmasters. Shortly after her trip, the Pink Boot Society was created. The organization now has 71 chapters worldwide and offers educational classes, mentorship opportunities, conferences, regional chapter meetups, job resources, and a network of female professionals. In the past year, it's actually opened up to not only professionals and students in the beer industry, but all alcoholic beverages, including wine, spirits, hard cider, hard kombucha, and so on. Anything with booze in it, you can join. For the fourth year in a row, Pink Boots Society has teamed up with Yakima Chief Hops to release a seasonal Pink Boots Hops blend to bring awareness to the organization and women in the brewing industry. Each regional chapter partners with local breweries starting in March during Women's History Month to create and release a beer while hosting brew days as a chance to work together and learn more about the brewing process. A percentage of the proceeds from each beer then goes back to the organization's local chapter. There's also a blend for homebrewers to use as well, which is what I used. You can watch my brew day and the review of my Pink Boots Hibiscus Pale Ale on my YouTube channel, Flora Brewing. To learn more about Pink Boots and get involved, go to pinkbootssociety.org. And now let's hear from Tara Nuren. show, Tara. It's wonderful to have you on to share some much needed insight into the history of women in beer leading up to the modern times, especially given the new book you've written. So I wanted to chat with you initially about debunking the article posted by Smithsonian Magazine and that was picked up by numerous other outlets that was titled Women Dominated Beer Brewing Until They Were Accused of Being Witches. But Smithsonian actually added another editor's note, retracting the piece. Plus, they added links to articles and experts, including our previous guests, Dr. Christina Wade Donegan, and you. It seems like the hard work of historians are paying off in correcting the misconception that Brewsters were the inspiration behind the iconography of witches and that they were persecuted to force them out of the brewing world. I actually saw your call on Instagram to be interviewed on this subject, and I was like, I have to jump on this opportunity. So I have to ask, what's the real story of why Brewsters fell out of the brewing world? So yeah, this is a topic that's generating a ton of interest. Periodically, we will see these articles circulate generally around Halloween. I think because it's Women's History Month, we are seeing this topic come up right now. And it started because a website called The Conversation first published the story, and then it got picked up by a lot of 
other outlets, including Smithsonian. We've focused on Smithsonian because they're the most reputable of the outlets that have been running it. And you're right, they did correct some mistakes and write two editor's notes about it. And they changed the headline as well. So the real story is that nobody knows the real story. You know, I think this serves as a great lesson to news consumers. I mean, I'm usually the one out here saying like, trust, you know, trust reputable sources. And this shows that you can't even always trust normally reputable sources. But what you can do is spot some red flags because the headline that was so troublesome that the Smithsonian changed made a direct connection between witches and Brewsters. And the headline also said that women were Brewsters until they started getting accused of witchcraft. And that's why they left, you know, left brewing. You can't ever say this is the cause and effect when you're looking at history that's a couple hundred or a couple thousand years old. That's a long way to answer your question, (laughs) which is um, most women brewed at the time and throughout most of history. And what we're talking about here is 15th, 16th century Europe when the witch trials were really rampant throughout Europe. And that does coincide with the era when women really did stop brewing overall. I mean, it happened over the course of a few hundred years. It was longer than just, you know, the 150 years or so that the witch trials were were going crazy. As far as historians like myself can piece together, women brewed Women were accused of witchcraft, but there wasn't necessarily a, Brewsters weren't targeted by witchcraft accusations. Um, There was definitely, probably, (laughs) a ton of overlap because, like I said, women were brewing and women were accused of witchcraft. But nobody has found, nobody that I know of has found any record in any country that a woman who identified herself as a Brewster, as a profession, was accused of witchcraft. Thanks to some very extensive work done by your former guest, Christina Wade, she's looked at a lot of different time periods and literature and um, pictures of, you know, several that span several hundred centuries in Europe to show that the timing just doesn't correlate. You know, I mean, we talk, we think of witches now riding around on broomsticks with uh, pointy hats, right? And, you know, some of those symbols that we associate with witches were items used by female brewers. Broomsticks, um, you know, the argument has been made that women would put an ale stake out, which could be a broom, um, in front of their door to let people know they had ale ready to sell to their neighbors and to the ale taster who would come around and charge them fees. Um, But it just doesn't line up necessarily with the timing of when you start to see witches associated with broomsticks, et cetera. And um, witches at the time of the witch trials were not depicted with pointy hats. They were often shown just wearing plain old clothes, no hat, or maybe an old fashioned hat that was kind of square at the top. So if you start really looking at the facts, you see that it's highly improbable that there is this connection that so many people like to make. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's so widespread. I mean, I did my own Halloween episode and talked about this and I'm like, oh, I got to retract that. (laughs) I mean, the first time I wrote about this issue was several years ago for a beer magazine in New Jersey that doesn't exist anymore. And I 
hope I never said this is the connection. I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't, but I also, you know, thought, well, this makes a lot of sense. This is probably what happened. So I have made that mistake myself. Yeah, it seems so easy to. So you've done a ton of research on the subject of beer history and specifically the history of women in beer. And you have a new book, Woman's Places in the Brew House, A Forgotten History of Alewives, Brewsters, Witches, and CEOs that's available to order and will be released in September. I actually just ordered my own copy and I encourage all my listeners to do the same. Your book is an in-depth look at women in beer from the ancient to modern. I personally love stories, especially ones about beer. What's your favorite piece of history you've come across in your research? Do you have anything scandalous to report? (laughs) Ooh, favorite and scandalous. I wasn't prepared for that. Great question. Scandalous? Um, What comes to mind are snippets of stories of bootleggers during prohibition. We're not tending to talk much about women in beer during prohibition. I just cover it more as women in alcohol, unless we're talking about, well, I mean, actually, yeah, this is pretty scandalous. I take that back. There is a lot to do with beer, but mostly from not the uh, imbibing side, but what I talk about regarding beer and prohibition is what the brewing industry did to women leading up to prohibition, there was a lot of overlap, as you probably know, between the temperance movement in the um, late 19th century, early 20th century, and the right to vote movement, the suffrage movement for women. Um, And so there were a lot of assumptions, mostly true, that if you were for one, you were probably for the other, right? You wanted the right to vote for women, you were probably going to vote for temperance. Brewing industry couldn't have that. So they put out so much fake information. They um, bought the services of a former prominent suffragette to say bad things about temperance. The brewing industry would go to peaceful protests of women outside saloons and kick them, sick dogs on them. Anyone who knows me knows I am not a religious person, but I can't get this image out of my head of these pious 19th century earnest progressive, actually, for the time women kneeling in the streets in the Midwest uh, outside of saloons praying, you know, to free the victim drinker of the sin of alcohol and the brewing industry heads, the people who are involved in the association that formed would come out and kick them while they were kneeling in the street praying. And like I said, sick dogs on them, throw, you know, beer on them. Um, So yeah, I guess when it comes to scandalous and sad, that is a really, really, really ugly mark on the brewing industry. And unfortunately, it's not the only one when it comes to women. You know, when we talk about this issue broadly or in an introductory way, you know, everybody likes to talk about the 20th century commercials and ads for beer and how they portrayed women. And and that's no joke. I mean, leading up to, you know, bikini clad babes that I'm guessing you're probably younger than I am, that I grew up with as a kid and, and, you know, are still around a little bit, although mercifully less so, you know, for decades, the beer industry portrayed women terribly in its ads. And that wasn't an intentional strike to keep women out of brewing. There were plenty of other forces to do that, but it certainly alienated women and made them feel like 
this product isn't for you. And we do still see that with, you know, some modern beer names and labels. Yeah. That's a whole different topic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's um, yeah. I mean, fortunately we are moving past that. I grew up in the nineties and yeah, even then it was way more prevalent than it is now to have like the kind of misogynistic uh, labeling and just exploitation of women for sales. Yeah. And I'm prepared to say that almost any time big beer is doing anything related to women, it's self-serving. It might look good. They might dress it up and make it pretty, but um, it's self-serving. A lot of people are, I'm going to get a lot of phone calls for that from my sources in big beer. Sorry. That's history. That, that (laughs) prove me wrong. That's what I'm going to say. Prove me wrong. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Pink Boots has played a huge role in increasing female representation in the brewing world with scholarships, seminars, and good old-fashioned networking. How have the demographics in the brewing world changed since you entered it, and what do you think we should do to push it in the right direction towards more inclusivity? It's really unbelievable how many more women I do see engaged in all areas of the beer industry now than when I joined Pink Boots in 2010. A lot of people just individually, it was interesting in conducting interviews on this particular subject, a lot of people threw the year 2013 at me. And so I view 2013 as having been a huge sort of pivot point for women in beer. A lot of states were very much liberalizing their craft beer and tasting room laws at the time. And beer was having its latest resurgence was hitting the mainstream. When I first started writing, this proposal, I thought that there would be a large handful of certain women who would definitely go in the book because they were women whose names came up all the time when talking about women in beer and beer in general. And then by the time I actually wrote the book last October, I couldn't put them all in. Like I was thinking about how um, you guys are based in LA. And this morning I was like, oh, I didn't put Meg Gillen from Golden Road because she just didn't necessarily fit in. But had I written the book a year or two earlier, somebody like Meg, Meg herself would have absolutely figured in. So it's like a good problem to have, <laughs> right? That there were so such an, there was such an abundance of women to choose from. I had to leave out some of the pioneers. And you said, what can be done? Um, I think a lot can be done. I mean, as you know, the Pink Boots just started welcoming women from all alcoholic beverage categories and not just beer. So I think that's a good thing. We can learn best practices from one another. You know, say if if a distillery is doing something really well when it comes to promoting women, for instance, you know, the people in the brewing world can, can pick that up. The scholarships continue to be a very strong force in getting more women into the industry via Pink Boot scholarships, that is, with like some of the top organizations, academic programming and certification organizations in the world. And just really continuing to be visible and speak up for ourselves and ask for raises and ask for promotions and work really hard and don't complain. Because unfortunately, I believe a woman in beer is going to be judged more critically than a male counterpart. And uh, I'm very heartened and relieved and um, encouraged that we're 
finally starting to talk about sexual harassment, discrimination, and violence in the industry because it was just such like a hushed, whispered topic until right now. I will be sitting on a panel hosted by craft beer professionals in a couple months, joined by some other very strong women in the industry who have been victimized or, you know, have encountered unfortunate activity in their work lives. Um, and just to keep talking about that. So it's not in the shadows anymore and the perpetrators are called out and it feels like a safer, more welcoming, inclusive industry for women anywhere in within the industry. Yeah, that's so important to be able to feel like you can join the industry without facing repercussions from like just the culture itself. It's true. I know several women who have left the beer industry just the, after getting harassed one too many times. They're like, I, I'm done. And you know, women in the beer industry, I mean, women who go into beer are tough women, you know, they already work hard. I've never met anyone in the, any female in the beer industry who wasn't like an extraordinarily hard worker with a thick skin. And uh, so, yeah, we just can't afford to have this happen and have good women leave any women leave the industry. So yeah, it's something that we really need to pay more attention to and and talk more about. Fully agree. So let our listeners know the best way to stay informed on your book articles and everything else you've got going on. Thank you for the opportunity to plug myself. Well, so the book, as you mentioned at the top of the show is on pre-order. Um, the links are really long. Basically, you can pre-order it on Amazon. And um, if you don't want to give money to the man, <laughs> you can also pre-order it on bookshop.org, which is a site that lets you either designate your local bookshop to get some of the funds. Or if you don't do that, it just goes into a pool and gets distributed throughout, I guess, at the end of every quarter or year or something. So basically, you could Google like, Tara Nuren, A Woman's Places in the Brew House. And I would imagine that Amazon and that indie link will pop up. You can follow my stories on Forbes. I have my own page. So put in like Forbes Tara Nuren. You can also visit my website, which is perpetually under construction, but there is some information there about how to get in touch with me and such. If you want to, you know, assign me a story or hire me to do some marketing for your brewery, et cetera. And that's just taranuren.com. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Tara. This was a blast. taste two beers that are local to Los Angeles. First one is going to be Frog Towns All Places and that's their Pink Boots Brew. And the second one is Sage Bistro's Carob Coconut Stout and I've been going to Sage for years and they just opened their brewery and I haven't tried any of theirs yet. All right so let's start with the Frog Town because this episode is about women in beer and pink boots. So we are going to dive right into this female-focused beer. And let me give you guys a little bit of backstory. This is a 5.5% pale ale. It's brewed with the Pink Boots Hop Blend and Warrior Hops as well. And Mallory Jackson, Frogtown's general manager, said, it's our third year brewing a Pink Boots collaboration beer at Frogtown. This year, our team of six women decided to create a crushable hop-forward tropical pale ale that we double dry hopped using the Pink Boots Hop Blend. The name of the beer, All Places, comes from a favorite Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote. 
When she passed away last year, I felt the urge to do something to pay homage to the badass woman who helped pave the way for women everywhere to have a place at the table. And the Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote she's talking about is, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception. All right, so let's get into this beer. Frogtown Brewery is my husband's new favorite brewery and I've actually not ever been there. So I'm really excited to try this beer. He occasionally will bring me home a few beers, but I have not gotten to try this amazing one yet. All right, so it's a little hazy, but like it's not a haze bomb at all. Like I think if this sat for maybe a few more weeks, it'd probably be crystal clear. Um, it's a nice pale gold color, beautiful white head. It definitely smells like a double dry hopped beer. It's got some pine quality, some grapefruit on the nose. It really smells quite delicious. It reminds me of the scent of like a triple IPA actually because the hops are so forward in it, but you know, it's only 5.5%. So I am turned off by super overly hopped beers. This is like the most balanced pale ale I think I've had in years. It is light, it's hopped, but like not super bitter. It's just, it has all the hop flavor without like the punch you in the face West Coast vibe. But it does read like a West Coast. Like if you took your standard West Coast IPA, let's say like a Pliny or something, and you removed the bitterness from that. And it's like obviously Pliny's heavier than this, so this has a lighter body in general. But it, it just kind of reminds me of a light version of a Pliny without the inherent bitterness, which I truly appreciate. It's just so crushable. I think I could like drink this by the pool and not get overloaded. And even though it does have hops, which make me sleepy, I feel like this is one that I could honestly drink all day. I am a huge fan of this beer and I'm really happy I get to finish this can after I'm done recording. All right, so let's go to our second beer. The history behind Sage Bistro is it is a vegan restaurant, one of LA's greatest vegan restaurants. They've been around for a really long time. They started in Echo Park and they just recently opened the brewery portion. Their head brewer is Kim Rice and she is also the co-president of the Pink Boot Society Los Angeles chapter. Another thing Sage has got going on is they actually have a farm. It's called Sow a Heart, where they source produce and grow their own hops, which is amazing. And I can't wait to go back there once they are allowed to have people back in the restaurant. Uh, just doing some research on this brewery, I was like, oh man, I need that vegan mac and cheese. It is so good. All right, so I digress about my vegan mac and cheese. Let's talk about this beer. It is a carob coconut stout, which I can honestly say I've never had one of these before. Um, the carob is actually grown at their farm, which is amazing. And this is a heavier hitting one. It's 7.2%. I might have to finish this one after I finish my all places one because I think it might put me to bed. Alrighty, so it is a beautiful, thick, dark beer with a dark tan head. It looks quite delightful. And just pouring it, I could smell the chocolatey notes of it. I don't pick up a lot of the coconut in the nose, um, but I, it's like chocolate in your face. And it honestly just kind of smells like uh, baking cocoa, which, I mean, how can you beat that smell? You know, I still am not getting coconut, 
but I do get a nuttiness. But it's it almost reads more like a walnut than I would say a coconut. It's just like dark chocolate loveliness. It's pretty dry for a stout. It's not overly sweet. And it drinks pretty light. You know, it's like a very lightly sweetened piece of dark chocolate. It's not overly filling. It's really nice. And I honestly think I could drink the whole can of this. Sometimes when I get a super sweet stout, I kind of have to like take a little bit and then share it. Uh, but this one, I can honestly say I would drink all by myself. It honestly is kind of giving me a like chocolate milk vibe or like hot chocolate. It's got um, nice creaminess to it on the back ends that kind of reminds me of like milk chocolate versus when you're up front, it's like super dark. I think this beer is just really, really amazing. And personally, I cannot wait to go to stage, get a I don't even know what kind of dessert I would pair this with, but honestly, some like vegan ice cream would probably be amazing. Oh, like a vegan ice cream, coconut carob stout float. And you guys should definitely do that. If you're in LA, check out Sage, check out Frogtown. These beers are just like mind blowing. I'm like, what have I been drinking this whole time? Thanks so much for listening to my review. I will talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandsband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and... Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit